You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. And shivers down your spine Shrieking skulls will shock your soul And seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise When you hear these zombies Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class The podcast that lit the black flame candle And summoned the Sanderson sisters on Halloween night I'm... Mummy Megan. I'm I'm Mummy Megan. You're you're Mumgin. I'm Mumgin. I'm Jackua. <laughs> what? I jack you off. I want to jack you off. <laughs> I I want a very different kind of body juice. What? <laughs> I want to make you come. <laughs> And they, you know what? Jackula would be way more popular at parties than Dracula. Uh, E-Jackula. <laughs> Wait, no, that just makes it sound like he's just running around, just coming on people. No, no. I come to your house in the night, and I come on you. Jackula. <laughs> like a mama used to make. <laughs> I come, I come sucking your blood like a mama used to. You're RJ. I'm dead, Jay. <laughs> you're dead, Jay. I thought you were dead, RJ. Dead, RJ. And you're listening to this on Halloween. Do, 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 do. What the fuck was that? I'm trying to do the Mike Myers song. Oh, wait, what? Wait, 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 Screech, 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 screech. That's a hard sound to make with your mouth. What was the fucking, like, wait, what's the Halloween theme i'm gonna pull up the right one now because i need to hear how completely how just completely off you are see i was thinking more of like that um Dracula. I actually don't know what song that is. You gonna Google? Yeah. This is a podcast about books. Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, it's a classic literature podcast, and uh, we got the rest of our Halloween short stories. Part two. Part two of this spine-tingling short story spooktacular. Last week's episode covered the two short stories that were voted on by our patrons, so you can go back and listen to that one. And this episode is the ones that we picked, that we wanted to do, because it's our holiday too. Gosh darn it. So this is actually going to be really short because I have no author information for mine because it's Ray Bradbury. <laughs> this will be that. short. This will be short, but it's a bonus. Oh, it's like a treat. Like yeah, we promised. It is. It's, a, it's an extra treat. Instead of a trick, you get a treat. The trick would be 
I guess if Dra- Dracula coming by, <laughs> yeah, and just coming on your candy. Come find him out back by the dumpster. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard, and they're like, "Jack me more," and I'm like, "I'm Dracula." So it's perfect. I agree to this arrangement. <laughs> this works out well. <laughs> Let's maybe start with our with their first story that you chose, <laughs> so that we can stop talking about this. <laughs> You have to do the Crypt Keeper titles for this one. No, I can't. Yes, you can. A rose for Emily. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, Crypt Keeper. You nailed it, Crypt Keeper. A rose for Emily by one William Cuthbert Faulkner. I did not know that was his middle name. Uh, Cuddy. Cuthbert. No, no, that that strays dangerously close to a certain nursemaid of Robert Louis Stevenson's who shall not be named. Oh, this guy's cutty now. <laughs> I, I guess if that's uh, what we're stuck with, it's a really weird way to refer to William Faulkner. <laughs> that's gonna confuse the shit out of people. Oh, well, he can't be Big Billy, Big Faulkmaster. He can't be Falky. Bertie. Sh- sure. Why not? Bert. Well, was that any more confusing or less confusing? It's all equally confusing, so just pick one. William. Just Will. Yeah, let's call him Will. Okay. Mr. William Faulkner. Born September 25th, 1897. Died July 6th, 1962. William was born in Albany, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. Look at you go. Look at you spell. <laughs> to Murray Cuthbert Faulkner and Maud Butler. Names. Names. Daddy Faulkner worked for the Gulf and Chicago Railroad Company, which was owned by Grandfather Cuthbert. Jesus. Now, Daddy Faulkner assumed when Grandpappy died, he would inherit the company. Well, you know what happens when you assume, right? Grandpappy, with like his dying breath, sold the company so Daddy couldn't inherit it because he thought the guy was an idiot and couldn't cut it at business. Arsh. So this forced the entire Faulkner family to have to move out to find some work. They did stick around Mississippi, even though Daddy really didn't want to move to Texas. Mommy put the kibosh on that whole Texas thing. And so they kind of just popped around Mississippi. So Faulkner's family was a family of storytellers. In fact, a lot of stories were told to Faulkner about his namesake, William Faulkner, who was his great-granddad, who was also a writer. Among the stories he was told about the guy included his exploits as part of the Confederacy in the Civil War and as a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, boy. They always referred to him as the Old Colonel. William would mention this later in life, and he would say that actually by the time he was born, the Old Colonel was basically a deity in the household. Oh, gosh. The stories he heard growing up helped shape his own image of the South and the Confederacy as well as the Klan. William initially took well to school. He excelled early on. He even skipped a grade. As he got on in his education, however, he became a bit more of a reclusive figure. He skipped school quite a bit, and he basically just became indifferent to the whole endeavor. Eventually, he actually had to repeat a few grades. Instead, what he began to do was rely on his childhood nanny, Carolyn Barr, an African-American woman who helped basically feed uh, William's insatiable hunger to read and write, and that was also buoyed by Mommy Faulkner. Once he graduated from grade school, William sought to join the U.S. Army, which makes sense if all you hear about growing up is the old colonel. Oh, yeah. What the fuck was that? (laughs) Remember, remember, remember. Motorcycle. Really bad engine. 
Or someone revving up a chainsaw <laughs> to go do a murder. Oh, yeah, and the whole First World War was going on. Thing is, is that Faulkner was five foot five, and the army didn't want his short ass in their ranks. So instead, he enlisted as a reservist for the British Royal Flying Corps. They were fine with tiny little guys. Well, despite some claims of doing big and great things with his enlistment, records show he never saw any service during the World War. Not only did he never see any service, he got super hammered and crashed his plane on Armistice Day. Happens. <laughs> Happens. I know a lot of things about William Faulkner, but I'm going to try to save most of them for when we finally do as I lay dying. No, not sound and fury? No, fuck Sound and the Fury. <laughs> so he did attend the University of Mississippi for like a semester. He took one English class and earned a D. <laughs> Good enough. And he noped the fuck out of school realizing he didn't need this shit to be able to write the stuff that he wanted to write, which he'd been doing basically his whole life up until that point. So while William had written poetry from a very young age, he didn't really try to cut his teeth at short stories and novels until 1925 when he was 28. Eventually... His short story and novel writings what led to his highest achievements, including a Nobel Prize in 1949, Pulitzer Prizes in 1955 and 1963, and National Book Awards in 1951 and 1955. He was definitely drunk for his acceptance speech of multiple of those. Here's a recurring thing here. Also, thought, Billy Bob never occurred to you. William Faulkner, growing up in Mississippi, and you did not think to nickname him Billy Bob. You want to be Billy Bob? I'm just saying, I'm so shocked that didn't occur to you. That's pretty close to Billy Bud. I don't want to confuse that, because eventually we'll do Billy Bud, I'm sure, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I like Billy Bud. Well, then put your foot down and be like, let's do an episode about Billy Bud. He's a Christ-like figure. Great. He dies for their sins. <laughs> that's fantastic. Spoilers. That's That's really neither here nor there. If you want to do an episode on Billy Bud, just say so. <laughs> Have you read Billy Bud? Yes! They've... Did you imagine to be as attractive to Oh, too? my. <laughs> I see, I always imagine this really hot guy. Yes, they, they make it seem they, like he's supposed to be a really hot guy. This does not belong in our Halloween episode. This is a short story by Herman Melville. Okay, right, can we get back to what I'm doing here? In some ways, Faulkner wasn't the same man before he started publishing his works, quite literally. You see, he was first born... William Faulkner, F-A-L-K. But when his first book was published, there was a typographical error made, naming him Faulkner, F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. Oh yeah, I forgot that. Faulkner, showing indifference, shrugged it off and decided that would be his name now, because why not? (laughs) Guess I'm this now. He wrote extensively about Southern culture, in particular about his native Mississippi, throughout his life. In fact, later in life, he created a map to show the fictional county. Oh, I know this one. Yachnipatafa. There you go. Our American lit professor in undergrad, which is where I read As I Lay Dying, was obsessed with William Faulkner. And also, she spent a considerable amount of time trying to get us to pronounce it correctly. And so we would all just say it wrong on purpose. You'd be like, Yaknapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapat
It says E.T. That's it? E.T., that's, that's it. That's really weird. Well, because E.T.'s buried there. That's not... Yeah, the Steven Spielberg's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Conversely, maybe they just buried all those NES games. <laughs> potato, potato. I think that was in Utah. <laughs> well, it turned out it was Mississippi. <laughs> all right, so that is a brief bio of William Faulkner, perhaps Billy Bob. We'll revisit this in the future when we review The Sound and the Fury. <laughs> so now, on to a rose or Emily. So to get a few of the characters out of the way here, Emily is Emily Grierson. She is, I want to say the protagonist. The main character. Yeah, just the main character um, that the story's focused on. She is the one who gets the rose, like on The Bachelor. <laughs> yep, that's it. It's a rose for Emily. The Bachelor says, I like you best, Emily. Now let's get TV married. There is Mr. Grierson, who is Emily's dad. There's Toby, Emily's black servant. Homer Baron, that dude Emily crushes on. Colonel Santoris. What a name. <laughs> yep. And then other people. Sundry others. All right. So the story opens with us being told that Miss Emily Grierson is dead and that everyone in town went to her funeral as, quote, a sort of respectful affection for a fallen monument. The women mostly out of curiosity to see the inside of her house, which no one save an old manservant, a combined gardener and cook, had seen in at least 10 years. Yep, people were there to pay respects and figure out what this weird shut-in was up to. So the story's given to us through the eyes of what seems to be townspeople who've put together reports at different times to keep track of the goings-on. The different narratives total five, and each is written in a different style with a different point of view. So the first narrator tells us, quote, Alive, Miss Emily had been a tradition, a duty, and a care, a sort of hereditary obligation upon the town. That's a great way to refer to a person, a hereditary obligation. So they meant this actually kind of literally. You see, Miss Emily was the only citizen of the town to not have to pay taxes. When her dad died, she didn't take it all that well. Like, when he died, she not only didn't want to avoid having a funeral for him. She didn't want to avoid having a funeral for him. Not only didn't she want to not have a funeral for him. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I made it more confusing. Okay, so when he died, she basically told everyone she didn't want to have a funeral. And she also kept on living as if he hadn't died. She tried to tell everyone that he was alive And she wouldn't let anyone into the house to get the body to bury him. She was just like, but he's not dead. Why do you want to come in to get the body? He's fine. Daddy's fine. How did they know that he was dead? That snitch of a gardener slash cook slash Toby. Ah. Eventually, the townsfolks convinced her that, like, she really needed to let them in to get the body so they could bury the guy. That's a health hazard, ma'am. Eventually, she relented and let them get the body, and a funeral followed basically immediately because they're like, we got to get this body into the <laughs> ground now. This fucker's gross. It was only attended by the townsfolks. She did not go, and neither did her family. The town felt bad for her. Her father had never let her date, let alone marry. By the time the dad died, she was in her 30s. She had been part of the town. She taught painting to the children in town. And she seemed to be generally likable and attractive, just fully controlled by her father. Creepy. So the fact she didn't handle his death well, the townsfolks didn't really hold it against her. And so when the taxes were due that first year, no one wanted to be the one to force her to pay. And so the mayor, Colonel Santoris, was like, Emily, your dad did some good stuff back in the day, generally. So we won't charge you taxes now. Consider it paid in perpetuity. 
And they really did it this way because they knew she was too proud otherwise. After all, the Griersons were like the family in town. They had been the movers and the shakers. They looked down on the townsfolk and the townsfolks were okay with it because it was like, we look up to the Griersons like, look at the Griersons, how special they are. That's weird. That's not a normal thing. Also, so apparently they're like this big deal and they know that she'll be too proud for, for them to be like, look, we just won't ask you for taxes. But she won't pay the taxes. Well, they never asked. <laughs> so they never asked her for taxes. They just went and said, hey, you don't have to pay taxes. They might have sent a notice and she ignored it, but no one wanted to talk to her. It was a, this is the start of a number of issues <laughs> and a number of points where the townsfolks could have done something and they didn't. Right. There, okay. there, were, there were a number of stops <laughs> along the way here where they could have acted. And didn't. And so they come up with the story, oh, don't worry about the taxes. Um, because they just kind of felt bad for her. Again, you know, the Griersons were the family, but now Emily was all that was left of them. And so they kind of hoped the family would go on because it was their family. Like, this is what we all aspire to be. We were going to aspire to be the Griersons. And now this weird stuff's going on with them. So they want her to, to go out and fuck someone. and, and just, yeah, yeah, more or less. <laughs> all right. How so, Emily got her groove back. So Emily was seen less and less over time. So Toby, he was the only one to come and go from the house. And as one generation of townsfolks moved to the next, they still weren't quite sure how to handle Emily. It's noted early on in the short story that when the next mayor came to power, he did not exactly want to honor the agreement with the previous mayor and began to send notice that, hey, Emily, tax season. (laughs) Pay your fucking taxes. (laughs) She ignored the notice, so then they sent the sheriff. Ignored that. And so the mayor, the sheriff, and like all the towns, like city council people showed up to her house and they say, yeah, Emily, you kind of owe taxes. <laughs> Your dad was good. He wasn't that good. <laughs> so she said in a voice that was dry and cold, I have no taxes in Jefferson. Colonel Sartoris explained it to me. Perhaps one of you can gain access to the city records and satisfy yourselves. They replied, but we have. We are the city authorities, Miss Emily. Didn't you get a notice from the sheriff signed by him? <laughs> Miss Emily then says, I received the paper, yes. Perhaps he considers himself the sheriff, but I have no taxes in Jefferson. The new mayor says, but there's nothing on the books to show that. You see, we must go by the book. And she cuts him off and says, see, Colonel Satoris, I have no taxes in Jefferson. The problem, the colonel's been dead for a decade. <laughs> but so the townsfolks. They kind of look around each other and they go, oh, it is what it is. <laughs> this is going to be more trouble than it's worth. It basically just ended there. It kind of just looked the other way and didn't press any harder than they needed to. Now, Emily wasn't a complete shut-in. At first, after her dad's death, she really didn't go out. Or rather, she did go out, just wasn't all that often. She went out enough to catch the eye of one Homer Baron, a gent who was described as likable, despite being a northerner in the southern town, and if there was something going on in the town, Homer was at the center of it. So they liked him even though he was a damn dirty yank. Well, you know, it's the 1900s now, and so people kind of coming around. <laughs> people can get over that shit. Um, Emily and Homer would be seen out on the town going for rides in their glittering buggy, as it's described. Can't pay taxes, though. <laughs> Miss Emily was with her head high and Homer Baron with his hat cocked and a cigar in his teeth, reins and whip in a yellow glove. I see. You know, but it seems like Emily, despite telling Homer she wanted him, like for marriage, wasn't doing all that great when it came to winning him over. Now, the townsfolks believed in her, though. They really thought, 
oh, Emily, she's going to get him. She's going to win him over. Even though when they talked amongst themselves, he was a pretty tough egg to crack. Since he mentioned before to them, he wasn't really the marrying kind. In fact, it's written, quote, she will persuade him yet because Homer had remarked he liked men. And it was known that he drank with the younger men in the elk squab, that he was not a marrying man. Um. But they still believed in Emily. She's going to turn this guy around. So Emily's cousins from Alabama then show up. It's not clear why, but the townsfolks thought it was to tell her not to marry the northern boy. Because the Grierson family is still very traditional, very southern. They figured the cousins aren't about this yet. Mm. And so they thought the family and the cousins are stuck in their ways and they're trying to make Emily be stuck in her ways. And they noticed Homer disappeared during the time the cousins were around. And they were all hoping for him to return. So they were not privy to the conversations going on with the cousins. And Emily was then seen buying all sorts of men's clothes and gifts embroidered with the initials HB on it. And she was out on the town buying food. People thought, this is great. (laughs) She's going to beat the shit out of these cousins. She's buying her gifts for her soon-to-be husband. Things are going well. She's buying food. And she then went to the pharmacist to buy... Look at her buy that food. She went to the pharmacist to buy poison. That's less good. (laughs) So Emily goes to the pharmacist and has this conversation. I want some poison. <laughs> Bring me a bottle of your finest poison, sir. You exaggerate. She then repeats, I want some poison. The pharmacist. Yes, Miss Emily, what kind? For rats and such? I recommend... I want the best you have. I don't care what kind. Oh my god, it really is. You there, give me your finest of poisons. <laughs> the druggist named several. They'll kill anything up to an elephant, but what you want is... Arsenic, Miss Emily said. Is that a good one? <laughs> I recommend a Chardonnay. The pharmacist never replied, is arsenic? (laughs) Yes, ma'am, but what would you want? I want arsenic. The druggist then says, why, of course. Only the best for Miss Emily. If that's what you want. But the law requires you to tell me, what are you going to use it for? As it's described in the story. (laughs) Miss Emily just stared at him. Her head tilted back in order to look him eye to eye until he looked away and went and got the arsenic and wrapped it up. When she opened up the package at home, there was written on the box, under the skull and crossbones, for rats. <laughs> what is it with this woman where it's just like, yep, all right, fine, you know what, you're here, just take it, just take the arsenic. Oh, Emily, don't pay, you don't even got to pay taxes for it. <laughs> no one in the town really dug more than that. <laughs> That's not suspicious. There wasn't any law and order Jefferson, Mississippi. So then the uh, cousins left town. Good news. The townsfolk were happy. Again, they don't know exactly what was said or what this was all about, but they saw uh, the cousins leave. And then within a day or two, Homer Barron showed back up. And they're like, yes, this is it. Emily's stuck up for herself. Homer's back. They're going to get married. She has all these gifts. Perfect. She's got that arsenic. And so the town's dreams were realized. They were so happy for the new couple. They are going to get a happy ending. The Griersons are going to live on. They're going to be this great family. Miss Emily's going to have a happy ending. It's weird, though, now, because the new presumed wife and husband were basically indoors all the time. Actually, they were really never seen at all anymore. And a smell started to come from the house. Hmm. But they figured Homer just didn't know how to keep a kitchen. And, well, bad kitchen smell. And so the women in the town talked about, oh, that Homer, you know, he's so likable, but I guess the guy can't cook worth a damn. <laughs> You 
you know how when a kitchen's not tended to, it starts to smell all corpsey. Um, most of the townspeople were okay with it. <laughs> I guess we'll just live with this. Except, except like the nearby neighbors. One neighbor in particular went to a judge to complain about the smell. The judge then replies, "But what will you have me do about it, madam?" Something. The woman says, "Well, send her word to stop it." Isn't there a law? The judge replies, I'm sure that won't be necessary. It's probably just a snake or a rat killed in the yard. A different neighbor than a uh, male neighbor now says, no, it's simple enough. Just send her word to have her place cleaned up. Give her a certain time to do it in. And if she doesn't, the judge then cuts in. Damn it, sir. Will you accuse a lady to her face of smelling bad? <laughs> At which point, all inquiries into the smell of the house and... Good God, man! No one will tell her she owes taxes. No one will tell her her house smells. So, but they do come up with a solution. The solution is, as night falls, they gather about six men armed with limes. They just wander around the house, squeezing limes and planting limes all around the house. Wait, like lime, the limes a plant? Yeah. They just squirt citrus all over. That's such a weird, like to think of like this was salt with limes and in the middle of all this like one of them looks up to the window and they see emily just standing there looking at them as they're squeezing limes all over that is fucking buck wild and so they all kind of just skitter away the good news is the smell stopped that's the power pine salt baby so no one really saw much of emily or homer ever again the town began to believe homer must have spurned emily and that she was upset and now she's a complete recluse her dad died the guy she wanted to marry he's a forever bachelor maybe gay maybe like a man who knows and now she's just alone with her toby and when the townspeople got the postal service and they were putting mailboxes in for free on everyone's house the one time emily came out of her house in like those 10 years was to chase them away and say don't put that damn box on my house <laughs> and so she could never get mail and so when they sent the tax bill every year they just couldn't <laughs> deliver it anymore <laughs> She figured it out. She found the loophole to cheat the system. It's so you can't send me bills if I don't have a mailbox. And so now we are caught up to where the story began. It's been basically 10 years since anyone's been in the house. And so one day, Toby leaves the house and everyone's watching him because they try to get all the news about what's going on in this house. We haven't seen her in a while from him. And he notices like everyone's looking at him. He, he basically goes, hey, FYI, Miss Emily's dead. I'm outies. And he, like, skips town ASAP. Like, he just runs. Deuces. This is weird to all of them. But so everyone gathers up. They're like, well, we gotta bury her. They show up. And she was had a bed, like, in the living room. Like, in the living area of the house. And that's where they find her body. She's kind of fat now. She has, like, short hair. It's all white. And they're always like, oh, sad. So sad what happened to the Grierson's. So sad what happened to Emily. And then they notice, like, the house is kind of in just not good use like, smells in there and there's like a lot of dust in some places and so they're kind of going room to room and they get to one room where they can't open the door it seems really blocked that's never a good sign and so they uh break into the door and there's dust in there and it fills it and they notice as the dust is settling all that stuff she bought years before like a silver tray that says hb on it the shirt with HB on it. All his toiletries that say HB on it. It's all the marriage stuff's in that room. Yeah. And the dust is all there. And then they notice there's a bed. And on the bed, they see a man laying there. A body. 
that was kind of weighed in a way of an embrace. Kind of like hugging somebody. Oh. And I'll read for what it says. For a long while, we just stood there, looking down at the profound and fleshless grin. The body had apparently once lain in the attitude of an embrace. Em- you mean em- an embrace? An embrace. What the fuck is an embrace? <laughs> <laughs> of an embrace. But now the long sleep that outlasts the love, that conquers even the grimace of love, had cuckled to him. What was left of him rotted beneath what was left of the nightshirt, had become inextricable from the bed in which he lay. And upon him and upon the pillow beside him lay that even coating of the patient and biting dust. Then we noticed that in the second pillow was the indentation of a head. One of us lifted something from it, and leaning forward, that faint and invisible dust dry and acrid in the nostrils, we saw a long strand of iron gray hair. So, Emily had been sleeping with the corpse. That she poisoned. Well, maybe. But that the corpse had rotted into the bed. Uh, And was just bones at this point. That's so gross. And she held it. That's so gross. Yeah, she probably poisoned him. Because he didn't want to marry her. I don't know what was up with the cousins. Well, so there's a couple different ways of reading it. um, What's the rose? It's just a story. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically the the fact that Faulkner wrote the story for Emily. There is no physical rose. What? Disappointing. Fake news. That part of it, them being from Alabama, what it seems to be, and I I do kind of like the reading, is that it's important that Homer Barron is from the North. And Faulkner was actually... I know we didn't get super in-depth into his biography. He was actually pretty progressive. He Even was, though he had the, the Ku Klux Klan great-grandfather or whatever. <laughs> that he really felt, and he wrote about it in other works at the time, that the Southerners really needed to move on. Like, he would have been the Southerner who was against them waving the Confederate flag today or still erecting statues of Confederate soldiers. Like, he thought the South needed to maybe move past this a bit. <laughs> we lost. Let's move on. And But he maybe also felt bad for some of the people. And so that's part of how people read Emily, that she is very Southern. Her families are like Alabama, like the South of the South. They're rooted in tradition. They're, they were a well-to-do family. And you know, that she has this Northern guy that she can't have. Like, And part of it is that the South still saw the North and wanted it to be like how things were, but it couldn't be anywhere. We fought the Civil War. And so she kills him. <laughs> And that way he can't say no to her anymore. And things are kind of just on pause for her. And that she just never wants to move beyond that. And so like there is like this whole weird north-south love affair going on about how like the south, some people just couldn't move on with it. And the town moved on around her, but she didn't. And so that Faulkner maybe kind of feels bad for these people, but also like this is what you people look like. Like you people are like literally clinging to zombies and corpses in your bed. And the rest of you are just letting it happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the other side to it too. Like you're not dragging the people like out of this. Like there were plenty of points of intervention. Like when she didn't let her dad's corpse go, and then like eventually did. Like let's maybe talk to her, get her some help. Like obviously this woman's having some issues. Yep. And then um, you know she stopped giving the painting lessons and all the stuff didn't come out anymore. Maybe you could have helped a little bit more with that. Cousins are there. Not sure what this is about. You're buying poison. That's weird. Oh, you don't want to pay taxes. Okay, well, maybe we need to talk about this constructively. Oh, there's this really weird smoke up from your house and your fiance slash husband that we thought you were going to marry is not around anymore. Let's just squirt some limes on the problem. And they're like, yeah, well, we just won't see her for 10 years. 
many points of intervention, and they just turn the other way every single time. Yep. So there are a few adaptations of A Rose for Emily. One is actually a song by the Zombies, a 1960s British rock band that never caught on quite like the American band known as the Beatles. That would explain why they sounded like the Beatles. Listen, they didn't really. They, 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 yeah, they were the British uh, response to the American band, the Beatles. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So the song is named A Rose for Emily. Subtle. The song ends with the following lines. Her roses are fading now. She keeps her pride somehow. That's all she has protecting her from pain. And as the years go by, she will grow old and die. The roses in her garden fade away. Not one left for her grave. Not a rose for Emily. There is also a 1983 short film made for PBS that stars Angelica Houston and John Carradine. Oh man, Angelica Houston is a good choice. It's only 27 minutes long and people seem to love the shit out of it. So it might be worth checking out. Oh, I'm about to watch that. And John Carradine, Kung Fu Man. That's David Carradine. Oh shit, I got the wrong Carradine <laughs> all figured out. The end. I don't know, any thoughts there on A Rose for Emily Meg? Not really. I actually was not all that familiar with it. I've only read the novels. have not read uh, Faulkner's short stories, really. So. This was like his first short story. Like This is like the first thing he published. Damn, just right out the gate with that shit. Yeah. Awesome. I just considered like the best American short story. <laughs> Better than The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> it's pretty close. Like this is apparently like the short story. It's told in that interesting like plural narrative of like the town which would become like kind of more of a a thing in terms of like a narrative viewpoint and that's really interesting and it's spoopy. There you go. <laughs> Halloween! Hope you're enjoying this continuation of creeps and crawls? So even though this episode is stories chosen by us, it's still brought to you by our wonderful, amazing patrons and... You guys are taking me up on my my offer because it's it's been less than a week and now we only need six more patrons to hit 50. And for me to start dialing back on this whole business, you, you'll still, you know, you'll still get your shout out. It just won't be all of them always all the time because 50 is a lot. And you know what? 44 is a lot. So I'm going to take a cue from one of my favorite non-literary spook boys, Rod Serling, and get started. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of patrons. You're moving into a dimension of both Natalie and Mads. Both Barry and Morgan. What's that signpost up ahead? It's Not Alone Podcast at Not Alone Pod. Caitlin at Rose Phantom. A loyal patron like anyone else. Say, perhaps, E.S., Amy W., Sarah R. But imagine a world with Ariel Teague, Melina, Janet, and Jen. A world that at first seems so similar to our own, except that there's also Amy B, Aaron, Katie, and Ben at Canis JM. I'm talking about generous individuals known as Florian, Brandon, Jared, and even Pseudobred. But imagine a world wherein generous patrons like Ares, Cheryl, and Samariel do not exist. A world in which there is no Alexander, Tanner, or Chris at Play Comics. In this strange space, we might still find Kiki, 
Sam, Lucas, or Sarah C. But what of Anne, Brett, Caitlin, or Harriet? And what about the Rod Serling voice that I started this bit with? To find it, you're going to have to follow Lanikins40, Kendall, Lonnie at Lanyon, Dirk Dammit at Killing You Guy, Wendy, Kate D, and Matthew Yaboy Chips Ahoy into the Twilight Zone. A chilling tale indeed. <laughs> this episode's pod pals are the hosts of the show, the Stephen King Boo Club. Which if you're listening to this episode on the, the day of its release, it has come into existence right now. Today, it's a new baby podcast out in the world, so I can't really be like, yeah, I listened to it, it's tight as shit, because I'm back here, I'm in the before times, but I've talked with one of the hosts, Phoenix, a good bit, and he seems like a cool dude, and honestly, even if I didn't know him, this trailer has me sold. But uh, yeah, listen to it, and then go listen to them, like right now, maybe. I don't know what time of day it's coming out. I'm in the past! What do you want from me? Five decades. Oh god, I gotta give a shout out to Carrie killing her own mom. 42 novels. It reads sort of like like a meatloaf lyric. 18,000 pages and counting. Is that your mom? Yeah, that's my mom's. What uh, up, Steven's mom? <laughs> Every bestseller in chronological order. Fucking great quote. Good shit, Stephen King. Two Stephen King superfans will begin an impossible journey. It's the Stephen King Boo Club. Join us, won't you? The Stephen King Boo Club launches this Halloween. And now, for our second teat. What? Treat. Gross. Have a suck of my treat teat. Please stop. (laughs) (laughs) The October game. (laughs) This is uncomfortable. I don't like this Crypt Keeper. <laughs> Wait, why does the Crypt Keeper laugh like <laughs> Crypt Keeper's starting to sound a little bit more like your Stitch impression. So originally, um, I was going to do The Velt by Ray Bradbury. So there's not really much bio to go into because we we done did that. Our RJ gave a pretty comprehensive bio of Miss, Mr. Ray Bradbury back in episode... Ray Ray. Yeah, Ray in Ray. the house. Yeah, back in our, our episode on Fahrenheit 451. I think it's episode 22. I want to say it's episode 22. And so if you want to uh, hear about the life and times of Ray Bradbury, you can go back and listen to that and experience the time that he got booped on the nose by a man in a circus named Mr. Electrico who screamed at him, LIVE FOREVER! Go on. So Ray Bradbury is typically kind of thought of as a a sci-fi author, or sort of like soft sci-fi fantasy wearing like a sci-fi kind of suit. But either way, like, you know, the things that he's sort of most famous for is like the Martian Chronicles, things like that. But he also just did like a bunch of spooky stories. And so one of the ones that I really love that I was going to do is called The Velt. It's a story about these two kids in their virtual reality nursery and that they get like way too into lions in Africa and kind of lose touch with reality and potentially murder their parents. And a lot of people read it today as like a herder, technology bad, don't let kids play video games. And yeah, like there's a bit of that there. And we know that Bradbury got fairly anti-tech as he got on in age, as you will also uh, hear if you go back and listen to our Ray Bradbury episode. Dude never went on a plane even because he was like, the metal bird frightens me. He lived till 2012. Like he was just... (laughs) Anyway, 
But I had misplaced my copy of The Illustrated Man, which is the collection that story appears in. I was looking for a PDF online because I'm a bad crime person. But in doing so, I actually found a short story that not only I, I hadn't read, but I had never even heard of called The October Game. And it was first published in 1948. I have no idea what collection it's even in because I, I have several Ray Bradbury uh, collections because I'm a fan, but I've never heard of the short story. So it's kind of spooky. I've never heard of it either. Well, you've never heard of the Velt either. Wow. <laughs> So that's, I feel like that kind of adds to the, the mystery. Bradbury is, is definitely no stranger to either the spooky, scary story or Halloween, which he always said was his favorite holiday. One of my favorite books, not just about Halloween, but in general, is Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is a very good Halloween book. But I've never read anything by Ray Bradbury that is quite like the October game. And apparently with good reason, as it is considered the darkest thing that Bradbury has ever written. I found a couple sort of secondhand quotes floating around about how Bradbury apparently regretted writing it like years after that he was like, yeah, you know, maybe I went a little too far with that one. But unfortunately, I couldn't find any like direct quotes or concrete kind of stuff to back it up. I wouldn't be surprised if it's true, though, because this story is fucked up, y'all. Um, that's why I was like, oh, we're, fuck, we're doing this now. So this is the October game. Just to let us know right off the bat, that Bradbury is not in any way fucking around. The story literally opens with a man named Mitch putting a gun he is contemplating using to kill his wife back in a drawer because no, that's too easy. And he wants his wife Louise to suffer. <laughs> yeah, it's it literally just, quote, he put the gun back into the bureau drawer and shut the drawer. No, not that way. Louise wouldn't suffer. It was very important that this thing have, above all, duration. Like, that's the opening line. Oh, boy. So, yeah, this is Mitch, and he wants to draw out his, his... He wants his wife to suffer. He wants very bad things to happen to his wife. Why, though? She don't put out like she used to. No, not quite. Through Mitch's frenzied thoughts, we learn... Actually, you know, it's not even... It's weird. It's manic, but at the same time, it's very, like, collected. It's very cold and detached, and that's what makes it so frigging creepy. We learned that it's Halloween and nearly winter... And he just can't deal during winter. Like, I guess he gets seasonal depression, something fierce, and he can't deal with being cooped up with his wife, who he hates all winter. And his wife hates him. Like, they, she hates him right back because he forced her to have a child that she didn't want, that she almost died giving birth to. Mitch hates her because he thinks that somehow, out of spite, she gave birth to a daughter who looks nothing like Mitch and exactly like Louise when he really wanted a son. So he was like, because she was so pissed that I made her have a kid that she used her uterus to make sure that it was a girl that looked like her and not me. So Mitch is fucking crazy, basically. Happens. Yeah. Schnappens. Schnappens. He sees their eight-year-old daughter, Marion, and wishes that he could love her, but nope, she's, she's just too much like her mom. And Mitch can't take another winter trap with them, so it's time to take action. He considers leaving Louise for good, except that he knows that that wouldn't upset her. If anything, it would probably make her kind of happy. He even says that if he knew for sure that a divorce would give Louise any pleasure at all, he would stay married to her forever, out of sheer spite. Which is just insane. Like, if you don't like this woman, just fucking leave. Like, he considers, like, you know, yeah, I could just pack a suitcase and leave and never come back since I hate staying with her. But no, no. He wants to, quote, he needs to hurt her as much as she had hurt him. And he considers what he could do in order to accomplish this. And he ponders the possibility of somehow legally taking Marion away from Louise and blocking her from having custody, knowing that that would cause her to suffer. But in the end, he does something 
slightly different. That night, they throw a party for all the kids and parents in the neighborhood, like a Halloween party, and Mitch makes a big show of being a great host and playing with his daughter and all the kids, and the other parents are all like, wow, like, what a great father and husband who's totally not completely balls-to-the-wall homicidal. He then herds everyone down to the pitch-black basement, picking up Marion and carrying her down as they're the last ones in. There's scraping and rattling noises, and Mitch yells for the kids to be quiet and says, The witch is dead. And this is the knife she was killed with. <laughs> yep, and then Stitch comes and it's, oh, it's the alien <laughs> encounter with Stitch at Disney World. <laughs> I'm going to circumcise you with this knife. What the fuck? Why do you immediately jump to Stitch giving a circumcision? Going to make you bleed. No, this is weird. Going to take your foreskin. <laughs> Ohana means nobody's foreskin gets left behind. <laughs> all right, so it makes your family. They all go through the same thing. Oh, God. So he passes the knife around in the dark, and then he says stuff like, The witch is dead, and this is her head. The witch came to harm, and this is her arm. Passing items around to the kids in the dark, and they're like, Oh, this is the whole, like, get a bowl of grapes and go like, Ooh, it's eyeballs. And a bowl of pasta, it's intestines. Ooh. The witch was nuts. Here's her nuts. <laughs> And uh, they all get into it, although a few of the kids get pretty freaked. And then shit gets real, and it's really fucking good. And so I'm just gonna just read the the way the story ends. Um, the witch cut apart, and this is her heart, said the husband. Six or seven items moving at once through the laughing, trembling dark. Louise spoke up. Marion, don't be afraid. It's only play. Marion didn't say anything. Marion, asked Louise, are you afraid? Marion didn't speak. She's all right, said the husband. She's not afraid. On and on the passing, the screams, the hilarity. The autumn wind sighed about the house, and he, the husband, stood at the head of the dark cellar, intoning the words, handing out the items. Marion, asked Louise again, from far across the cellar. Everybody was talking. Marion, called Louise. Everybody quieted. Marion, answer me, are you afraid? Marion didn't answer. The husband stood there at the bottom of the cellar steps. Louise called, Marion, are you there? No answer. The room was silent. Where's Marion? Called Louise. She was here, said a boy. Maybe she's upstairs. Marion? No answer. It was quiet. Except for that fucking train. <laughs> Zoom! Louise cried out, Marion, Marion, turn on the lights, said one of the adults. The items stopped passing. The children and adults sat with the witch's items in their hands. No, Louise gasped. There was the scraping of her chair wildly in the dark. No, don't turn on the lights. Oh, God, 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 don't turn them on. Please don't turn on the lights. Don't. Louise was shrieking now. The entire cellar froze with the scream. Nobody moved. Everyone sat in the cellar, suspended in the suddenly frozen task of this October game. The wind blew outside, banging the house. The smell of pumpkins and apples filled the room with the smell of the objects in their fingers, while one boy cried, I'll go upstairs and look, and he ran upstairs hopefully and out around the house, four times around the house, calling Marion, 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 over and over, and at last coming slowly down the stairs into the waiting, breathing cellar and saying to the darkness, I can't find her. Then... Some idiot turned on the lights. The end. <laughs> Is that not just, like, really fucked? Yeah. It just, God, it's so good. And it, it shows remarkable restraint. And that, you know, in the hands of, like, a good writer, less can be more. And, you know, obviously the big kind of question is, what exactly kind of happens at the end of this story? 
And so there's this American horror writer, uh, F. Paul Wilson, who has a quote about it that he says, The oblique descriptions in the dark throughout the game are never visually realized by the author. You must reconstruct them after the lights come on, making you a participant in the horror. So, what do you think happened? Marion pulled one over on him. Yeah. What a good trick. Because, <laughs> I mean, get freaked out, and I imagine, like, you know, the thing you immediately jumped to was, like, he butchered his kid and was passing things around and he doesn't really have enough time to do that though and also you probably would hear an eight-year-old girl being murdered with a knife (laughs) and um so some people think that the the thing of like uh, mitch's whole thing was that he wanted duration that he wanted to draw out louise's suffering and so other people think that he just hid her somehow because he was carrying her when he came down there and that the longer that they're there with the lights out, the longer Louise freaks out and can't find Marion and thinks that something terrible has happened. And so when some idiot uh, turns the lights on, it actually just ruins the fact that no, he did not just like butcher his daughter and he was doing all this just to fuck with his wife. Either way, it's some dark shit. Ray Bradbury Dark is usually just kind of like, we're were the real Martians and not like this shit. <laughs> so I just thought that was really interesting because I was like, I've never heard of this. This is kind of really fucked up and spooky so you know happy halloween <laughs> don't butcher your kids yeah don't don't butcher your children this is megan and rj saying please don't butcher your children dead rj dead rj this is megan and dead rj saying don't butcher your children to get back at your wife maybe just get a divorce jackula this is jackula saying i want to make you come <laughs> and i guess that'll about do it for us on this special little extra halloween bonus treat for you if you've enjoyed this year's spooky time thing, leave us a rating and a review on, on iTunes, on whatever podcatcher thing that you use that has ratings and reviews on it. It'd, it'd be cool. We'd appreciate it. Leave us a voicemail. We don't have a phone number for people to do that. Nine, one, one. Jesus Christ. Follow us on Twitter at Pod. Uh Check us out on Facebook. Join the Facebook group. Check us out on Tumblr at onolickclass.tumblr.com. Pledge to us on Patreon and you can vote on what episodes we do. You also get bonus content and bonus episodes. Um, we did a cool Edward Gorey episode not too long ago. You can always find us at onolickclass.com. And uh, the next episode... Jesus, when will the next episode be since we, we did this kind of two week in a row thing? November 15th. November 15th. Remember, remember... I think it's the 5th of November that people are supposed to remember. 15th. You can remember the 8th of November, because that's, that's my beating. Wait, 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 dox yourself. They <laughs> wish me a happy birthday. So until then, I'm Megan. I'm Wankenstein. <laughs> I'm Jackula. I'm Booberella. <laughs> I'm the fuck monster. <laughs> we love you. Bye. Okay. So, um, what are, you, what are you doing? The brass bonanza. Why? Because I mentioned it in the last episode. Okay, but I'm trying to, like, start talking. Too bad. So, uh, I'm going to talk about... No, it's not too bad. So, I'm going to talk about... Oh. Just take up more time, why don't you? <laughs> Come on.
Come on. If the Florida Panthers had a theme song this good, it'd be so much better.